All right, everyone, welcome to another No Gi Required. To me, I have a, a fascinating person that I met a few months ago, which he happens to do jiu-jitsu, pretty good jiu-jitsu. <laughs> Not an easy trend for anybody here. But um, I went through some of his life adventures, which is uh, amazing to me because I love animals. I have here Brandon McMillian. Sounds right. <laughs> you yeah. got that one right. <laughs> and I was talking to him and he, so many things that he's already done in, it feels like 20 lives in one life already. I think it's, if I'm not wrong, it's three times Emmy winner right on your show that you used to have Lucky Dog. Yep. I know you have the, you'll be involved with the Shark Week, which is <laughs> something incredible too. And Man, surround your life on early days with so many animals. And to me, I was talking to Jay, it feels like a detergent of our modern time because <laughs> it's incredible the videos that I saw, some of the things you do, and it's it's incredible, man. It's something that when you rescue an animal, and I'm just asking you a couple of minutes ago, I see that you're saving so many people's life in a way because you save the animal, which that animal that you train you make that animal to save other people's life. And yeah, you've done that yeah. for so many years, man, as a service dog, as just people want to adopt a dog. How do you feel, man? How, this is incredible, Brandon. You, I feel that you have a mission and you found your mission in this planet to be able to touch so many people's life. Well, it took me a long time to finally get to a point in my career where I actually just love doing what I'm doing. Because before I was just training animals and I'm like, well, there's something more out there for me, you know, and it took me took me forever. It's when I started rescuing dogs and, and finding finding dogs in shelters and, and training them for people who really need them, That's that was the game changer for me because it wasn't just the dog being rescued, it was the, uh, it was the person that I was rescuing it for. A lot of people, um, I, I train a lot of service dogs for veterans who got hit by IEDs in Afghanistan. They're missing limbs. And so I can train these dogs to do whatever you want. And it, you know, when I saw that, it's just I I broke down and cried so many nights knowing that I actually have this this ability to do this, and very few people in the world actually have the skill set to train an animal how I do. So and, and, I just use it to my to. And that's why something that I was about to ask you is, I know back in the growing up, if I'm not wrong, your father and your uncle they were training animals for the entertainment industry yep. and basically you grew up surround yourself with people evidently but animals yeah how is that growing up and be able to in the early days of your life be next to a tiger be next to so many big animals and no big deal uh, to me it was normal i swear like in school you know kids would bring they would, for show and tell, kids would bring their, you know, the newest toy on the market or whatever, and they'd show it off. For show and tell with me and my brother and sister, we'd bring baby tigers. Man. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's cool. That's so cool. I was, that was definitely the popular kid in school for things like that. So. But it was normal to me. I didn't, I didn't really look at it as like, you know, you don't, you don't see that stuff until, until later in life. I didn't realize how blessed I was until I, you know, I was like, you know, 20 years old. My father was a tiger trainer. I'm like, to me, when I was a five-year-old, I was like, all right, whatever, he's a tiger trainer, just like your dad's a lawyer, yours is a doctor, and yours, you know, works at a, he's a carpenter. I didn't realize till later, that's a pretty unique job. There's only a handful of tiger trainers in the world. Man, that's something incredible in a way, because to me, and I don't know much, it's, you have to born with something. 
that makes you the animals see you and I did see you see that in your shows and some of the footage I saw from you the animal look at you differently than look at me or anybody else how is that connection that you you have with the animal when when as a kid you realize like man I can actually be next to this gigantic animal and he's my best friend you know what I mean I wish I could answer that in a in a in a way that it would make me sound like like a god but that's not the case um I, a lot of it a lot of it's training from a young age because I'm just exposed to it. I mean, it's no different than jujitsu. You were born into jujitsu of a life of it. So it just, so much of it is just, is here in your heart. So much of it is, is connected from your, your head to your heart and your body. And you just naturally do things. A lot of it is just a magic that happens. How, I, I can't, I, I can't explain it in a way that like, I just say, okay, this is how you, how you get good about dealing with, animals. Because people fear animals. How was that for you in such a young age, dealing with your own fear or no fear to be next to all kinds of the animals that you were exposed to growing up? Because I was exposed at such a young age, it it wasn't it wasn't foreign to me by the time I hit twenty years old. In fact, when I was when I started training animals professionally, I moved to California when I was nineteen, and I started training animals for the movies professionally. I'm, by 19, 20 years old, I had more experience than a lot of the expert animal trainers in the industry at, at, at that time who were 40 and 50 years old. So I was with these guys that are like, you know, 50 year old, you know, veteran expert animal trainers, and I'm on their same skill level and I'm 19 years old. And I was always the young guy on set, you know, but they used to always make fun of me, you know, you're the, you're the nipper. They would always call me a little name, just <laughs> nip. And, um, I would always have the nickname, the young, you know, just, just, you know, always making fun of me because I was a young guy, but I was, the reason I was in that fraternity is because I had the experience by that age. So I was exposed at such a young age. It was normal to me by the time I was like, you know, 14, 15, I was, I was with 500 pound lions. And I did ask you that another day in class and, um, do you trust more people or animals? Animals. Yeah. Because the animals don't, um, everything they do is off of survival. Everything people, most things people do, it's it's off of like greed and you know and and money. It, a lot of it is like revenge, advantage. Anim yeah, animals don't understand those those concepts, like the seven you know deadly sins. They yes. don't understand that. Humans, most of the time, when humans kill, ninety nine point nine percent of the time they kill for psychological reasons. Animals kill to survive. That's that's a fact. Animals hunt to survive. Animals protect their territory to survive. Everything they do is just a survival instinct. Everything we do nowadays is for is just for greed. And, and you're right, Jay. It's it's to, for advantage. And let me ask you something: Is which of all the animals that you did train gave you more work to do? Because you train so many different kinds. Because when people are talking to you, you're not just train dogs. You train all kinds of animals from the footage that I saw. Uh, believe it or not, the animals that give me that that makes me work the hardest are shelter dogs. The ones that have actually been, you know, uh, abused physically, Somehow psychologically. Have, yeah. yeah, because they're the ones who, uh, we screwed them up. And so it's my job to pull them out, pull them back out of their shell. Training a tiger is actually easy. Tigers really don't, you really don't, you can't domesticate a tiger. It's still a wild animal. So now I'm just dealing with exactly the way uh, it is in the wild. I know when I get in front of a tiger, 100% of the time, it's going to try to kill me if I, if I let my guard down. You know, I know that. So that makes it, that makes my job a lot easier. And kind of able to prevent. 
you already know the reaction before they actually have a reaction. Yeah. So I take precautionary steps to make sure they don't have that advantage. But a but a shelter dog, I have no idea what this animal's thinking. I don't know what it went through. But you know one thing I saw on the shows that every time you're walking into the dogs, and most of people when they just appear in front of their dogs, the dogs are already very afraid. Or yeah. they wanna bite and when you walk in you see the dog look at you like, Well, this guy's my best friend. Yeah, I noticed well, on all all I saw, I don't know, Brandon, fifty of your shows. And then every time you're walking in, the dog look at you different than other people. Again, it goes back to what I was saying just a few minutes ago. There's there's just a certain instinct you have. When you're born into it, when you when you my first memories were around animal trainers, my first memories of life were being just exposed to big animals, every every kind of animal. It's an instinct inside me that I just, I can't explain. Just like just like you were born into jujitsu, there's instincts that it's almost some things you can't explain. They just happen naturally. And, and it felt like almost the animal is teaching you how to deal with them in a way. It's so incredible because, and let's, let's go back and um, on the early stage, like when were we young, young watching your uncle and your, and your father would you um, start helping them and they start showing you how to do it? And if it, then you became such a young age expert compared yeah. to a lot of older guys. When was the first time you have yourself as a child training actually or be there involved with the animals? Well, <clears throat> it goes in stages when you're a little kid. So when I remember when I was, you know, prob- probably between the ages of like five to like 10 years old, we were raising, we were raising the, the cubs, the babies. Um, that was pretty much our sole job. We had to raise uh, baby cubs until they get to uh, what's what's known as the, as the adolescent period. So that's when they hit maybe like uh, 100, 150 pounds. And then it's a little, little too dangerous for a five-year-old to be around an animal that size. So once, once, we, once I hit like, you know, nine or 10 years old, then we could start to deal with the adolescents. The adolescents are still adolescent for about maybe a, a year or two before they hit the, uh, the adult stage. Now, now they're about 100 pounds to maybe 200 pounds. Uh, they don't have the mentality, the weapons up here to actually uh, kill someone because they don't understand the the theory of predation yet. Not yet. You know, yeah, but uh, they do have the weapons by accident oh, to hurt yeah, somebody. Yeah. So you know, that's that. It goes in stages. So by the time I was I was about you know fourteen, fifteen. Size is a big thing with animals. This is what a lot of people don't realize. So if you have a if you have a human six foot tall, and you have a four year old standing next to that human, and you have a five hundred pound cat looking at both of them. Who do you think the cat's going to go after? It's going to go after the easiest kill. That's just the natural instinct of any animal out there. They're they're opportunists, and they want to go. They want the easiest route, just like we do. We want the easiest thing. If I had, you know, if I had two jobs on the table right now, and you said, okay, this job, you have to dig a ditch six feet long, six feet deep, and, and twenty feet long, or this one over here, you just got to fold my laundry. Well, of course, I'm going to fold the laundry. <laughs> so animals are no different. They want the easiest opportunity. So. It wasn't until we got older and, and bigger, you know what I'm saying, we, we actually look more like adults, then we could start working with the um, adult big cats. So then by the time I'm, you know, 14, 15, I started to become a, a tall kid. You hold yourself different. The animal looks at you much different. Oh, so that's definitely. when I started That's when I started working the adults. And then, like I said, when I was, by the time I was 18, 19, I was ready to start working in, uh, in the movies training animals. And it, it feels like, is there a technique also that you develop on your own with certain animals or with all the animals? Is that something that somebody can learn step by step? 
if it didn't, I don't believe anybody's going to be as good as you because you're born with that. You have all the animals as your friend as you're growing up to. Yeah. But it's that techniques that you use to teach someone to teach a dog. I saw that. You have those seven steps that, like in seven days, you can train the animal. Yes, yeah, so I, I call it the seven common commands, which is the which are the most common commands. You're t- this is for dogs in general. It's the most common commands you'll say to a dog every day. That sits. And stay. usually, how long that takes? Well, I mean, it's believe it or not, there's the the theory of training. This is going to sound very familiar to you. The theory of of animal training is identical. I literally, I in fact, I took the blueprint from martial arts to apply to animal training. It made me a better animal trainer. So, technique and conditioning. That's it. There's no secret. You spend one day learning, a, uh, teaching a technique, but you spend weeks and months conditioning it. So in reality, I can teach that dog to lie down in one day. I mean, he can learn it in one hour, just like I can learn an arm bar, just a basic Jujukutami arm bar. I can learn it in one hour. I'm not going to be good at it. I'm not going to be hitting it. But, you know, after months of, of doing it thousands oh, of times definitely. over and over, it's the same theory with um, with yeah. animals. There's no, There's literally no difference. So once I teach the animal the technique, it only takes a day, but now the conditioning process, I mean, it's it's weeks or months. It's, and the more you do it, the, the oh, better definitely. the animal's going to be. Yes, definitely. Did you develop, I, I, I think like anything as you perfect your craft, did you eventually start to deviate from the way you were trained and eventually kind of start your own yeah, 100%. Te- techniques and principles? Because I know, and I think this might be what Jean-Jacques is referring to, because you'll see people, you know, I'm... I've been fortunate enough to be around a lot of dogs and every once in a while I'll go into someone's house and they'll say, well, just watch out for this one because he's a little aggressive or he's this or he's that. And he comes right up to me. Yeah. And I just kind of yeah. hold my hand out, you know, a little submissive. I don't look him in the eyes and then he sniffs my hand and then after a minute, a little pet and then he's by my side. Yeah. And it's just kind of like an energy I guess you give off. But then from there, training and going back to jujitsu, like as an instructor, you start formulating the way you teach based on how you were taught. Yeah. But then over time, you start to develop your own voice, your own technique, your own style, your own expression of what you're doing. Yeah. When did that hit for you? I don't know. I think it I think it just eventually it just gradually evolved over uh, over the years. Um let's just put it this way. I had a I had I had probably about 3 or 4 main mentors of my life. Animal animal experts that the way I look at it, it was a, they, they showed me this big pie and they were giving me slices. You know what I'm saying? I was taking the slices that I liked out and there was many slices that I just didn't really see fit in my game. Uh-huh. So I took the most important slices out. And like I said, there's a lot of people that you just learn from in life. They're really not animal trainers. Martial arts taught me so much about, about training, training animals. So I took, I took a lot of my, <laughs> my, 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 uh, fundamentals from, you know, some of my jujitsu coaches. Cause I was like, you know, this is what I was missing. You know, this is what I was like the whole theory of just basic technique and conditioning. We're going to do it one day and we're going to condition it a million times. Now, no animal trainer taught me like that. They always said like, no, you have to do it this way, that way. So yeah, I mean, I, I took little pieces of the pie, um, that I learned over the years and eventually you get old enough and you just get crafty enough and you start developing your own, your own style. Eventually the student has to become the teacher. That's a fact. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then, and then going, a step further, you know, you mentioned about shelter dogs being the hardest to train because um, we rescue dogs. 
you know. Uh, I mean, the, well, the dogs that we have are rescue dogs, and they're yeah. se- specifically senior dogs. And I, I went through a period of that where I, I got one, and she was very aggressive. And it, it, it took some time and a lot of patience, but it was so emotionally rewarding watching the trust start to develop. And then that moment when she just wanted to sit on my lap, and she was like, I was accepted. Yeah. And then you, you start to realize, I, I didn't rescue her. She rescued me. Yeah. You know, it's this amazing feeling. And the way you, the way you teach and the, and the things that you do for these animals and how it helps people, do you find yourself, as you get deeper down this jujitsu journey, we're going now to the mats, wanting to help people through jujitsu, have you found yourself, does that crossing over at all where you kind of feel like, you know, I think I could do something with this too because this really helps people. Is that even is that even in your radar at this time? No, because I'm not good enough yet. Um, oh, I have to disagree with you. Yeah, me too. <laughs> That's okay. That's I have okay. to disagree too. <laughs> I, you know what it is. I, I, you know, the only time I would ever teach anything is if I was regarded as one of the, you know, the, the top players in the game. So animal training, I can, I'll take that. I'll take that. But, you know, as far as jujitsu, what it really does for me is the fact that we can. Number one, it's taught me so much self-control, like ridiculous amounts of self-control. I used to have a nasty temper, a nasty one, you know, so much so that I would do stupid things like break expensive tables and take a freaking sledgehammer to a wall. And I'm like, that feels better, you know, and that's a $3,000 fix right there. And, you know, getting your uh, ass handed to you enough times in this place, you realize all your, you know, troubles are just out the window. I'm just like, it feels so good to be here. So that's what jujitsu does to me. As far as me teaching it, my job in 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 the jujitsu journey right now is getting other people into jujitsu. That's my main goal. I've gotten a lot of friends into it, and they thank me every day. They thank me so much. I've got a new friend right. I've got an old friend right now that I've just newly introduced to jujitsu uh, during the pandemic, and he's just hooked. Well, that that's that's it. Then that's your that's kind of you kind of answered my question because it doesn't actually have to be like I'm gonna spend time with you and actually teach you all these things, but to share how much it's helped you and, and how, you know, emotionally, I mean, a lot of people, so much of our work here is people come in because they want to learn how to fight, how to defend themselves, but yeah. then they start realizing that there's something way deeper going on here and how emotionally it, it kind of rescues you, you know? No, I'm, I'm telling you, my worst day I could have in here, I've told this to John Jock several times, I've, you know, I've, I've battled depression my entire life, you know? And so much to the point where, you know, I, I nearly took myself out um, exactly uh, 10 years ago now. And, and I remember the worst days were always out the window when I, when I did jujitsu. You know what I'm saying? They just, this sport, I always, I hate that, you know, jujitsu saved my life, but it really did. Because I just, I, I look at the sport as like, this is exactly what I needed. The day, the first day I did it. I was, you know, I walked into, because I was doing kickboxing at the time. Um, this is back in the uh, mid-2000s, mid-late 2000s. And I remember um, a, a guy that I trained with in kickboxing, and he did jiu-jitsu once a week at another gym. And so I was like, I, I wasn't a believer at that time. You know, I was like, that's just a bunch of dudes rolling around on the ground. That stuff would never work. So I go to his gym, and I walk in, and I see these bunch of guys rolling around. And I'm like, yeah, this stuff would never work. I start walking out. And as I'm walking out, this dude walks towards me. He's an old guy. He's wearing a pink gi. Now, those of you who, uh, I know you know who I'm talking about. I was about. about to ask you. Yeah, he's wearing a pink gi. And I'm like, what the hell is this guy doing? You know, so, and he says, come on, let, let's get you on the mats. You know, he's like, you can't even barely talk because he's had his nose broken 25 times. 
So he pairs me up with this 14-year-old kid. I'm my size now. I'm 6'3", 200 pounds. He pairs me up with a 14-year-old. This kid couldn't have weighed more than 120 pounds five days into puberty. And this kid wraps me up like a Christmas present, sucks the life out of me, squashes me like a grape, like five times in a row. And And at that point, I was like, how the hell have I been alive for this long and I never knew about this? You know, I was never a believer. And suddenly I came back the next day and the next day and I was like, it's just something about the way I rolled on the ground. It just, it, it, it worked with me. I wasn't good yet, but it was something I was loving it. I was like, I never liked boxing. I couldn't move my, my body the same way as those, those really the science, those science boxers, yeah, yeah. the head movement and all that. I just never felt it. But with jujitsu, I was like, my hips are, everything is like working here, you know? And even when I got beat, I was like, that was so fun. <laughs> you know, I know that's the best part. Yeah. You know, you know, but, but to know what jujitsu does is you can't lie to jujitsu. When you come into the mat, you reveal yourself to jujitsu, and every day you have your own battle inside of you, until one day jujitsu hits you in a way that man, I need this for my life. Yeah. I never realized I born for jujitsu, jujitsu born for me. I just when I look around, it's like man, I'm surrounded all by my uncle, the founders of this art, and the way they present jujitsu to us wasn't for a competition at all was to change people's life, to give something. Because we all, when we come into a jiu-jitsu school, we probably have different reasons for be there. Some people want to lose weight. Some people want to learn how to fight. Some, but emotionally, jiu-jitsu start kicking inside of you and not changing you, just balance yourself. Mm-hmm. It makes you be a normal person. Yeah, And that's what the way I learned jiu-jitsu and the way we're going to continue to spread that. Going back to that gentleman with the pink gift, people don't know who that is, is Jean LaBelle, which oh, yeah. is a great friend of mine, personally, Jean LaBelle. Hi, Jim, and I'm gonna get you to sit here on the table with us too, very soon. <laughs> What's up, Jean? And let me ask you, is that was your beginning life in Jiu-Jitsu? Yep, that was my first day and, and you know, much different style, as you know. Um, but I'm glad it was my first introduction to it because it was a, it was what I needed at the time because Gene's style is very like, you know, like jujitsu is supposed to be the gentle way. Gene's style was just pain all the way. <laughs> In fact, when I was taking judo from him, you know, most, most throws, you're supposed to roll with it. You know, Gene always said to us, he goes, now, now when you throw them, be sure to land on them. <laughs> <laughs> so it was perfect for me at the time because I was angry back then. Now this style that you teach, I'm starting. You even told me a couple nights ago. You're like, I noticed. You know, you said I noticed when you first came here, you were just brute force. Now I'm starting to like flow with it more. I'm, that was the best words I ever heard because I wanted to learn that smooth style of jujitsu because I was always relying on my size and strength. And this will allow you to train forever without get hurt. For sure. And you're going to have a sharp jiu-jitsu. And you know, any time of the day you want to put more, you have it. But yeah. when you learn how to train somebody half of your size and use only the techniques, you know you can get him anytime you want. But mm-hmm. when you play the game, like you go to his size, that tells me that you know a lot of jiu-jitsu right there. Yeah. And that's yeah. a goal. I want to make sure you, you put your physique aside and play the game. And that's the whole idea. It's like you're playing a video game. I don't know how big or how good Jay is. just the video game. I want to get to his level. And basically, you're able to go up and down anytime. The strength is already on you. You already have that. 
But if you sharpen in the technique and put the strength behind, that's when I'm going to stop training with you. Yeah, me <laughs> it's, too. It's hard. It's hard when you already are big, though. You know, you've you've had a lifetime it, of like using your challenge. size it's to your challenge. advantage. Yeah. Yes. So I, I almost wish I started. I wish I started jujitsu at five years old because then it's impossible to use strength. That will make you like 14, 15 and right an expert. And that's reality. Yeah. A lot of teenagers, they're pretty damn good in jujitsu. And you say, hey, how, when did you start? Oh, I was four. And they're four years old on the mats almost daily. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. kid is like a little sponge. They, whatever show they observe that pretty quick. My nephew, uh, he just started two months ago. I am so proud. I am That's literally, awesome. I cannot wait, That's you know? Awesome. Yeah, and he's so, you know, he doesn't get, he's five years old and he's just, he's running around. He doesn't really understand yet, but his time will come. I and would I, tell, as a kid. I don't want to be there in his, in his path when it comes. <laughs> as a kid, jujitsu is a way of having fun. Yeah. And when you become an adult, it becomes a way of life. Yep. Because you will, like you just mentioned, you're going to implement a lot of things in your personal life and even professional life. You're going to use a lot of the skills that you learn in jiu-jitsu to yourself. Let me ask you, um, when was the idea of create such an incredible show, Lucky Dog? Because it was, it was amazing to me, man. When, when, when that happened? How long ago was that? So uh, I'll, I'll tell you the short story because it's a much longer one that I, I know we don't have a lot of time here. So uh, in 2013, uh, we all grew up with Saturday morning cartoons. We all miss them, but in 2013, um, all the the major uh, TV networks decided the Saturday morning cartoons they weren't getting ratings. They were just gonna they were gonna cancel them altogether because um, you know at that time iPads iPads came yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Like, all these apps and you know eight year olds oh. were they were playing on the iPads now. Nobody watched cartoons. So so what they were going to do is replace those those cartoons with all age shows for anybody that can watch. So what they did was they. Uh, they they went to people experts in a certain field and they said what do you do and how do you do it and so you know they went to you know people that like you know exercise people hikers people that cooked really cool like crazy culinary chefs and stuff like that and so they if they were you know unique enough and they were like okay if you want, this is your show your show is about literally just making gadgets in your in yes. your garage and make cool ga- you know um and they knew they wanted a, um, a dog show, a dog rescue show. So apparently they 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 went to you know like dozens of people and they were they were you know saying what do you do how do you do it and at that time Caesar Milan was the most popular um, dog trainer in the U S and and his model was very popular go to the house solve the problem and then walk away into the sunset. I I did things a little bit differently because I came from that you know animal training uh, movie background so I had access to uh, work at ranches. I would rescue dogs from shelters and turn them into movie stars. So I took it a step further. I was rescuing dogs from shelters and training, training, training them to be service dogs for people in need, uh, disabled veterans, kids with autism, kids with Down syndrome, therapy dogs for you know uh, kids in in like you know the cancer ward. You name it. You you have a foundation on that, right? Yeah, Create yeah. A, a nonprofit yeah. organization that. Yeah. And so that's how it all that's how it all started. So. Once they saw what I did and how I did it, they were like, they literally slid a contract over to me because they saw that all I, it's very simple. All I do is I, I go to a shelter, I rescue a dog and I assess it. I find out what it knows and what it doesn't know. And then I, and then I, I say, okay, I know who you'd be good for. You'd be good for a kid with autism. You know what I'm saying? You'd be perfect. 
So I, at that, you know, I'd have a, a roster of people that contacted me and there's, I have 20 families with kids with autism. I'm like, this dog would be perfect for you. And that's it. I would train the dog tailor made for that specific, specific family. CBS saw that and they were like, there's your contract sign here. It was the easiest show I ever got, you know? And, and, and if people have a chance to see, cause that's incredible because, um, you can see in people's face how, how touch the whole scenario that you, you, I felt you, I saw you emotionally, almost every show you feel like it's hard to walk away from the dog that yeah. you train so much. And I'm sure you have touched so much to a lot of dogs, but believe it, was, it or not, you'll see me cry on the show uh, time and again. You know, I hold it in most of the time, but there's some dogs because I have them for sometimes, you know, nine months to a year. If I'm training a service dog for somebody like a, you know, a small child in a wheelchair. So I'm crying because I miss, I miss the dog, but also it's happy tears knowing that I'm, you know, I'm training an animal to save someone's life. Yeah, man, that's, it's, I never see any show with that type of um, outcome that really saved the dog and that dog saved that person's life. That's what I'm saying, man. This, uh, this is a mission that you have in your life and I'm so glad you found because a lot of people are being saved by you because I know the show is like, I don't know how many years, like 200 episodes, something like that. And every single one, somebody was so benefit from what yeah. you've done, man. Well, yep, that's, that's like, the point. It's like, thank you for your service because I think a lot of people missing today is the animals are very important in the family environment. Well, believe it or not, I mean, wolves came, you know, all of our domestic dogs came from wolves, you know, a wolf-like dog. Wolves were no strangers to humans, you know, back then. Humans and wolves actually coexisted for, for one specific reason, because the wolf could benefit off the human and the human could benefit off the wolf. It was no fluke that the wolf was domesticated by the human. But one of the things I notice is a lot of the houses that I go, when you see dogs or animals, it seems to be a happier house. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they, we've, they've already done studies on this. People that have dogs live longer. It's, it's so amazing because, I don't know, as a kid, I remember my parents say, hey, we're going to get a dog for our kids to help them develop their emotional, their attachment to the animal, to yep. taking care and, and have that attachment as a lesson, life lesson right there. Yeah. And I still believe so much in that. It's ingrained in our DNA. What dog, humans around dogs is literally ingrained in our DNA from thousands of years ago. Like I said, it, we were you know, in the caves and, and we, we took wolves and said, you, we can benefit from you and the wolves can benefit from us. The wolves had, they had tools that we did not have. They have the nose. Their nose can smell things from miles away. We didn't have that. All we had was numbers and we had weapons, but our weapons were useless. If we didn't know where the animals were, the wolves, we would follow the wolves on a, on a hunt. And if the wolves couldn't couldn't uh, catch the animal, the animals was outrunning them. Guess what? We would ambush them. So we formed this coalition thousands of years ago, and we finally said, you know what? I'm going to domesticate you. Now we're gonna we're gonna domesticate you. You're gonna help us thrive. So from there, once we domesticated wolves, we created civilizations from them. What do you think? Uh, how do you think uh, like farming and, and and agriculture came about? It didn't come about from humans doing it alone. We needed herding dogs. The only way we can actually have a thousand, you know, a thousand sheep, a thousand goats, a thousand cattle herded up. Humans cannot herd a, a, a you know, a, a cattle flock, a sheep. They can't do that. There's no way. The sheep would just disperse everywhere. One dog, one dog can do it. We're the ones who did that. We took the wolf and we bred it down to something called a border collie. 
we thrived as civilizations because now we've created these massive herds of cattle and we said, you know what, now we can drive these cattle across this, these plains, eat the, you know, they can eat the grass and we can, you know, we can create big cities and civilizations. Now we couldn't do that before dogs. And that's, do you see more and more the civilization today losing that aspect of being near nature, animals? How, how different would be 30 years ago the animals and the animals today? What do you feel the purpose in families to have a dog or they don't want to have dogs? It's too much work. What do you see on, on your field? People want dog for what purpose? Well, I think, I think the best thing to do for a parent, for a young kid, you know, a kid who's five, six, seven years old, it teaches them basic responsibility. Basic responsibility means, you know, the dog took a crap outside, go clean it up. You know what I'm saying? That's your chore for the day. The dog needs to be fed, go pour him a bowl of food. This is basic. This is almost like a basic fundamental like building block for responsibility for a young kid. A lot of parents approach me because they want to start the responsibility that way. And the kids actually like it because the kids like the dog. So they want to walk the dog. They want to pick up the poop in the yard. They want to clean, you know, after the dog. And then, you know, it comes to the point when it, when uh, the kids get older, especially when they get like, you know, in high school, 14, 15, 16 the kids, you know, they want to stay in shape now. Dogs are perfect. They are a perfect way to stay in shape because the dog needs to be exercised and you have to stay in shape too. So especially if you have a high energy dog, like a like a boxer, a German shepherd, there's nothing better than taking a hike with a dog. You and know, it makes you hike longer too. On, 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 when you mentioned the families that apply to adopt a dog, you interview the family, see what kind of dog would fit to that environment. Because it seems today a lot of dogs, like family doesn't, walk the dog and have a high energy dog in their house it's not a good match or that can be changed with techniques and in the way you, you you educate the dog or teach the dog to be with that family well for, i mean first things first if they're if if the family thinks that they're just going to get a dog just for aesthetics and like okay here's like another thing we have in the backyard <laughs> they're not getting a dog from me you know what i'm saying like you have to be dog people you have to you have to want to play the game. Yeah. If I just saw, I mean, you'd be amazed. Some of the dogs that I've seen, you know, in the backyards of, you know, I, I've worked in every major city across the U.S. And we've done these, uh, we've done these secret, like, you know, these secret little missions where we're looking in the backyards of, you know, dogs tied up and in the freezing cold, you know, at night in the middle of winter, this and that. These people shouldn't have a dog. So that's what I'm saying. So in my, in my book, the first step is you have to you have to want the dog. You have to you know play the part of like yes, I want to exercise this dog every day. I want to get it, get it everything it needs. Then from there, of course, I'll teach you everything. But you got to want to do it. I mean, I'm, otherwise, I want no part of you. When when I mentioned that he, this gentleman is the Tarzan of modern time, I want to ask you this. You showed me a picture of you with a 18 or 19 feet long snake in Florida somewhere. Yeah. What was that? It was a Burmese python. In Florida, of all places, it's, <laughs> what, it's what's, kind of a mission of rescuing the snakes. Well, here's the here's the question. First of all, what's a Burmese python doing in Florida? <laughs> That's the first question you got to ask right there. So uh, there's two reasons for that. Number one, um, people in general, when they get Burmese pythons as two footers, the damn thing starts growing like a six foot, an eight foot, and twelve foot. Next thing you know, you need an aquarium the size of this entire room right here. Nobody has that. What do they do? They release it into the Everglades. Yeah. Another reason was in Hurricane in uh, 1992, Hurricane Andrew, 
um, there was a pet shop and it had apparently like it was a they were breeding uh, uh, Burmese pythons and thousands of pythons. The pet shop got obliterated. Thousands of pythons were um, were just suddenly in the Everglades at that point because it was right there, I believe, in Homestead, which is like touching the Everglades. So um, they um, I know some of the top experts in the world who actually they're they're hired to go remove the uh, the Burmese pythons from the Everglades. They're really tough to find though, because the Everglades it's like it's it's like a big jungle, number one. And there's only like a road here and there going through. So you can't really get off the road and start hiking in the jungle. You make it ten feet and you will not I mean there's too many vines. You will not make it through there. So you have to just basically uh, ride on the, on the side of the road and use a flashlight. Yeah, that's what I saw you doing that. It's middle yeah. of the night. Middle of the night and you have to use a flashlight and go slow and if you see one you get out and you gotta wrestle it to the ground. So we happened to see this this one. We were looking for about three or four hours. Didn't see anything. Suddenly ahead, we were about to turn around. We were like, all right, let's 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 just go home. It was already like midnight at that point. So we were about to turn around. And um, next thing you know, we see this massive speed bump in the road ahead. I mean, I, it was the road is, you know, 15 feet long. And this thing stretched across the entire thing. And so the guy I was with, uh, his name's Joe Wasilewski. He's one of the top guys in the world at this stuff. And excellent, excellent snake guy. But like most snake guys, always a little crazy, you know. That's just reptile. That's just reptile guys in, in general. And so uh, he jumps and grabs the head. I grab the tail and the, and the body. And then within like probably two minutes, his arm was getting wrapped up, and his body starts getting wrapped up. I couldn't control this because this thing was too big. This is a three a person. This is a three person snake. Oh, here is two of us. So next thing you know, he's wrapped up. And then he's like, I'm too wrapped up here. He gives me the head. So I grab the head. Now we're just doing a game of like a reverse twister with this snake. And I'm like, okay, so my girlfriend was with me at the time. And she's never touched a snake in her life. She's scared to death of him. <laughs> so I tell her, I'm like, babe, I know this might be a bad time, but uh, I need your help. So what you got to do is grab that tail. She's like, I'm not grabbing that fucking tail. <laughs> and so I'm like, this guy is going to die. He's about to get the life squeezed out of him from head to toe. And the guy's turning purple. He's like, help me. So. So anyway, we um, I told her, I said, I've got the head. Don't worry. You are not going to get hurt. She grabs the tail and I tell her what to do. I said, now, every time that snake makes a move, you go opposite. If it's trying to wrap this way, push against it. Use all, use your body. Do not use your arms. It's a tail. It's not going to wrap you. I've said, you, you got the very end of the tail and a foot in and put it against your body, elbows in, same techniques, and push against it. Use your body. And so I, uh, so I was like literally teaching her on the spot. And it took us about 15 minutes to unwrap this guy. And finally, we, you know, the snake was uh, restrained. We bagged it up. It, we put it in this in this bag, I swear. It must have been, you know, like four feet across, a couple feet wide. You could fit any size snake in this thing. This thing barely fit in there. We had to, like, shove it in there. It looked like a human body. It looked like we were the mafia. We just whacked somebody, <laughs> and we're ready to dump it in the Everglades at midnight. <laughs> it's amazing, though. Wow. And so the whole point is, the whole point of removing these things from the Everglades is they're, they're unbalancing the ecosystem down there. So before these Burmese pythons were released in the Everglades, um, the apex predators down there were the alligator and the Florida panther. Not anymore. The Burmese pythons ta- are, are taking out, oh, taking out alligator. They're taking out everything. They're taking out everything in sight. And so you can't have an imbalance in the ecosystem like that. So they need to be removed. They have to. And basically, you guys went over there and rescued the snake and released somewhere else. Um, it's not my job what he does with I them. I know. That's, that's but you catch above snake. my pay grade. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> 
And let me ask you this too is how was it when you had to do the shark week? Uh, was that your first experience with sharks or? No, no. I've done sharks before, but um, Shark Week was the just the main stage for me. It's just the it's the it's the uh, Super Bowl of shark experts, and so I um, I I was approached uh, in 2012 by his name is Jeff Kerr, and he's the the guru of Shark Week. This guy's been doing Shark Week since uh, I think the late 80s when Shark Week first came out. He was yeah. one of the first guys that launched it, and so. Um, so he, yeah, he approached me. He's like, Brandon, you're a surfer and you're kind of crazy. He goes, I want to put you one of my shows. He goes, because I know that you're uh, into this kind of stuff. So we do a show. It's a reoccurring uh, uh, series uh, on Shark Week called The Great White Serial Killer. And what we do is we actually go around and we investigate shark attacks in a region, whether it's California or some other country. And what we're trying to prove is uh, it, we it's no way to guarantee prove it, but we think that a lot of the attacks in California in a certain time period were from the same shark because number one, the bite marks uh, match up pretty well, uh, the size description, everything. And it happened in the same spot over and over. And sharks, the reason why we call it the, the great white serial killer is because serial killers always go back to the scene of the crime. Just like great white sharks do. If great white sharks are, they're, they, if they know they have success in an area, they're not stupid. They're going to go back there time and again. Sharks are like computers. They know, okay, I successfully hunted in this beach time and again. So I'm going to go back to that beach. That's my stomping grounds now. So there's no way to prove it was, it was the same shark, but that was our theory. <clears throat> People hated us for it um, because, you know, they're like, how dare you call a shark a serial killer? And um, I'm like, all right, fine. If I just take away cereal, cereal, would that be better? Because they do kill people. Let's just get real here. So <laughs> I'm not against great white sharks. You know, I'm just telling a story that actually happened. So just, just watch out when you go on that beach because <laughs> yeah, the shark might be there. Oh, well, you'd be surprised. They, there's, a, there's a rule in the um, surfing world. They, there's a saying that, say, that says, if you knew how many times a shark was right below you when you're surfing, you'd never go in the water again. Yeah, the guys in uh, Malibu would tell me that. They go, you're, you're usually never less than 100 yards from a great white. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty much the standard. Yeah. You know? So we've, you know, we've been diving outside of this place um, just above Point Conception, uh, Santa Barbara, right here in California. And it's called um, Halama, Halama Beach. <clears throat> Very famous camping beach. A lot of surfers there. And we did Shark Week there uh, three, four years ago. And we had the permits to actually dive about maybe 300 yards past the surf break and we were dealing with like four big great whites 13 14 15 footers just past the surf break so you tell me there's no <laughs> you don't got to worry about that now i know that i just scared the hell out of a lot of surfers that surf halama so that place is not going to uh, not going to be packed anymore <laughs> for at least the next year after this comes out <laughs> no but most most surfers they just they, they just kind of accept it they're like no i know it's just part, it's know? just the way it is yeah yeah. 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 And, and, and having said that, even knowing that there's big, great whites just past the surf break, your chances are still one in a million of getting attacked. In fact, you have more of a chance of getting killed in the car on the way to the beach than you do of getting killed by the great white. So yeah. your chances are still slim to none. In fact, you want to hear a funny story of how, how difficult it is to get bit by a great white. I was diving in New Zealand. This is like seven, eight years ago. And we were doing, um, we were doing cage free. We were, um, this is where you're, you're in the cage and then you swim out and you film the great white. You swim out like 10 feet out of the cage 
and then you film it going by and you run back in the cage and you wait for them to, to, to come by again. So I was filming this one great white and I'm filming him. He he's, comes right by me and then he just kind of slowly goes back. And then I just, I keep filming him and his tail is in my shot. That's it. And I kind of just, I kind of just pan off this beauty shot. And as I'm panning off out of my peripheral, there's a massive head. It just goes, boom. It bumps me in the side of my head. I look back and it was like a 14 foot great white that just nudged me. Oh. Now, if he wanted to take me out, he would have taken me out. Why yeah. did he not take me out? You know, they're not mindless killers. All he was doing, they don't have hands. You know, when we go to a gift shop. What do we do? It's the first thing we do. We start picking everything up. Hey, what's this? That's what they're doing. They don't have fingers. So that in, other, in order to find out what you are, they bump you with your nose. That's them doing this. Like, what is this? Yeah. All right. That's not meaty enough. <laughs> so that's just how they do it. So that's most likely what he was what he was doing to me. He just bumped me to see what the what the hell I was, you know. But I mean, I my back was fully turned. If there was one opportunity for a great oh, white to take me out, it was I would have been a, a goner right there. And by the way, that's probably the best way to go because you would never know what happened. Yeah, yeah. It's not like going in a plane where you're but, going but, down but I'm for glad eight minutes. Wasn't, I'm glad it wasn't your day with the shark. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you proved that you can't swim with the sharks. Again, for me, it's the sharks saw you. It's like, no, not him. He has something that the animals like it. <laughs> I'm too bony anyway. He's, Most of their diet is all like blubbery, you know. Yeah. I, they would, I would be like a like a really uh, overburnt chicken wing. <laughs> I'm no fun. There's a big filet mignon over there. Go get him. <laughs> Man, I can't imagine that. I'm probably not going to jump in the water again for quite some time. And here we are. After that, he's still doing the Shark Week and all of that. Brandon, is there any... Because to me, the, the Luck Dog show was such a... It had such an impact on me to see the result of the dog and all of this. If you can, evidently, is there any new project out there, something that you're working on to to be back on TV or something like that to, to continue to do what you do and um, that you can share with us? Well, put it this way, Lucky Dog was a TV show. I still do that. I just don't have a camera shoved up my nostrils all day now, you know? And I swear, I feel like there's a big, there was a big weight lifted off my shoulder when the show ended because it's a lot of pressure doing a TV show. Now, as far as future projects, just to be 100% honest, I think I just want to take a year off and enjoy life. You know what I'm saying? I've had, I've had seven years of just doing, being on TV and not, I haven't enjoyed life. You know what I'm saying? There's a big, it, it, Lucky Dog was fun, but the problem was it got too stressful. You did, know, it be, big, did, it, did it become work? Is that it what beca- it was? It became a lot of work. Big money, big, you know, a lot of big sponsors, you know, got a hold of it and they were like, you know, when big when big money gets a hold of it, it's like okay, now you have to you have to see their return is is returned back to them, and it becomes stressful knowing like okay, now I got to make sure this this show makes millions. Now next year I got to make sure it makes even more millions, and then and you do that takes, enough. It takes the fun off of it becomes like a stressful job in a way. That's not why I started the show. Yeah, I didn't start the show to make millions for somebody else. You know, I started the the, the show to save dogs. We all, you know, I was like, when I, I just, season one of that show was amazing because I wasn't making any money, you know. Season two, three, four, I started making a little money. Suddenly, like, season five, it was like the big money rolled in. I was like, this is amazing. I finally know what it feels like to just, you know, have that cash dumped on you, like all the all the, all the the big stars. 
within six months, I didn't like it. That's, and that's from the bottom of my heart because I realized that with big money comes, you know, that big responsibility. Uh-oh, I have to see their investment is returned to them. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, there, I know there'll, there'll be another TV show out there for me probably next year. Oh, I know? have no doubt. I but, have no doubt. But will I take it and knowing that there's, you know, that same, that same kind of a, a deal on the table? Well, we'll have to see. You know, that's what Hollywood's, you know, Hollywood, unfortunately, it is a business. It's not just making art. It is a business. And if you don't make them money, it's a wrap. You know what I'm saying? So I have to really come to terms and say, okay, what do I want to do? You know what I'm saying? I'm going to do a show where I got to make sure that, that it's not, you know, like, it's not like an investment. I have to make sure they get, you know, X amount returned every year because it just takes the fun out of it. Oh, that's... But the, the great thing is you still do on a, with your non-profit organization exactly what you're doing at Luck Dog for what everything that I read about you. Is there any advice that you could do to someone who wants to become an animal trainer or a dog trainer that would you give today some young person that every day they have to love animals. They have to like to be surrounded by animals. Yeah. But is there any advice after so many years and have so much success in doing what you do yeah. with animals in general that you could give to someone? Yeah, uh, volunteer, pay your dues. That's the one thing I see that people don't want to do anymore. They want to make the money the second they 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 apply for the job. A lot of people, what I notice, and I sound like an old guy saying this, by the way, but I see it time and again. You know, here I am. I'm just the next generation up from like the 18-year-olds right now, just graduating high school. And I see how they perceive life is just because they want it. They think they deserve it. Uh-uh. I had to volunteer. I had to work my ass off and make $0 for the first 10, 15 years of my career. You know, volunteer, pay your dues. Your time will come when it's time to make money. But it's not, and especially in the animal world, especially of all fields, the animal world, it's not a big money field. I'm one of the lucky ones. You know what I'm saying? I'm not. I'm not a great example of an animal guy because I just I most animal people they're not making a decent amount of money, but we all we all paid dues. We all had to work for free for the first ten years. Sometimes I had to work for free for the first fifteen before I actually caught a break. You know, I was actually getting evicted out of my apartment and I had a car on its last legs when I uh, when I got my show Lucky Dog. That's how. That's how. That was thirty. Five but, years old, I believe, when I got but, that show. But that's what I'm saying is you you have that mission that life put in front of you. And you, to me, knowing you in such a short time, it feels like, man, that's what was reserved for you. Because you love the animals. You grew up with the animals. Then you use that as a tool to save people's life. Man, I have no doubt you're going to have, you have that show, you're going to have many other shows because it does impact our whole society. And yeah. this is incredible, Brent. That's why I'm saying you're the Tarzan of modern time because you're not doing that just for you. You're doing that and a lot of people get the benefit of what you learn with, these amazing skills that you have, which is hard to describe. Well, let's just put it this way. If I had to describe why I do what I do in just a, you know, a few sentences, um, we're, you know, we're only here for 80 years, give or take. I know that when I'm in my 80s, my time is going to come. Hopefully I make it that long. And what do I want to be known for? Do I want to be known for the guy that made the most money? Or do I want to be known for the guy that made the most impact with animals? People never remember a millionaire for being a millionaire. People remember philanthropy. 
what did you leave this world? That's what I want to be known for. And the things that I've left this world so far, I've left, you know, hundreds of people with, with, you know, service dog, therapy dogs, dogs that have saved their lives, suicidal people that were actually going to take themselves out and the dog actually prevented them from taking themselves out. That's what I leave this world with as of now. I still have another probably 30 years in my career, you know, realistically, who knows what else I'll do. But right now that's what I've accomplished. And that was my goal from, you know, from the get go. It was not about making the biggest amount of money because I never look at animal training as a world you can make a lot of money in anyway. I chose a field that basically at best you might make, you know, five figures. <laughs> it, just, it was not a, not a big money world. So I, I, I looked at legacy, you know, there are a lot of people in the world that left legacies and they were broke. I and, respect those people. And it's such a young age because you're still very young. You already left for sure your mark out there, your legacy, which will continue for many, many more years. And I'm sure you're going to go way, way past 80. That's for sure. <laughs> not, and, with, not if I keep getting injured <laughs> in jujitsu. <laughs> Let me ask you this now too is, Training Jiu-Jitsu for a few years now and have the experience to be in different schools. I'm glad now that you train here with us. What Jiu-Jitsu represents to you? What change or what benefit you felt from Jiu-Jitsu in your life? Honestly, I think it's just uh, made me a more stable person. Um, it turned me into a much more of a leader. Um, I do like that whole... I love it when I'm working with a... Um, you know, with a white belt that's not so crazy. I like a little more of the blue belts because the level of crazy went down a little bit. But I like the fact of, you know, there's a there's a guy that I work with in class here. Um, if you listen to this, his name's Tell. I always work, I actually like working with him because he's my size and he actually, um, he's getting very good. And I actually show him like, no, do it this way. And I, I kind of like the whole fun, you know, the fundamentals of like, Try it this way. Now go arch your hips. You know what I'm saying? And boom, got it. You know, I love the whole like teaching the 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 generation or the or the belts below me because it's just fun doing that. You know. Now again, I I can't teach a brown belt anything or a, or a, a black belt. At least not no technique that I want to rely on. <laughs> I, I would tell you something. The, the thing is, in jujitsu, we all have pieces of our our game that we do extremely well. Yeah. And being doing jujitsu all my life. And it's not about the ranking that you are right now. I have more difficult times sometimes with a purple belt or a blue belt in certain positions that they do extremely well than with higher belts. And that portion of the game, say, man, this, this gentleman does better than all the other guys, to me, it makes more challenge for me. And each one of us, regardless of what, which rank you are right now, you have parts of your game that you do better than most of people. That's why sometimes the belt doesn't say much, especially today's time in jiu-jitsu. Yeah. It's really... Well, that's a, that's a question I've always had, too, is, um, well, first of all, just to continue on your point, I'd rather be a, a, a very dangerous purple belt than a watered-down brown belt. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because people look at the purple belt, they're like, oh, okay, we don't take you that seriously. And I'd rather just, you know, murk people that way as opposed to being the brown belt all of a sudden. I just don't know what the hell I'm doing. But um, I've always wondered how that works with uh, with jujitsu. Why is it, I can go against somebody who's, you know, a brown belt and, and take them 10 of 10 times. But then all of a sudden a blue belt I have trouble with. It's like the math does not add up sometimes. There's blue belts in here that I just can't figure them out. And they take it's, me. It's, time and again it's the matchup of this his game to your game 
you haven't figured out yet. But the more we train and you're going to reach that level that you're going to be able to attach in anyone's game and apply your game over their game. Yeah. And that that's on the way. Yeah. But right now we have this, that challenge like, man, I should be doing extremely well with him and I'm have a harder time with a blue belt than with a brown belt. It's a matter of uh, slowly you're going to be able to implement your game regardless who you train with. And that's it, that's on the way. And you're going to remember that I'm saying that to you. That's on the way. You see. Yeah. And Man, I have, I could be here for the whole week and ask for Brandon sure, for so sure. many things, man. <laughs> but let me ask you, I think this is the easiest question. You, you, you're going to be good. Who's Brandon McMillan? Who is, who's this person? Like, honestly? I'm, you know, honestly, I'm a, <laughs> I like art. I, I paint, I draw. I, I know what I love to do. I love gardening. For some reason, gardening is my other jujitsu. I have a really, I have a beautiful piece of property. It's a, it's a ranch. That's where I have, you know, all the dogs. And I mean, honestly, like, you know, the perfect life for me would be jujitsu, you know, at night and gardening all day. <laughs> I'm actually just a very like, you know, simple dude. I don't, I'm not flashy. I don't like need all, you know, all this uh, material things. I, I, something as simple as like, you know, just making a garden and like making it perfect. I'm like, oh, look at that. My life's complete. Let's go jujitsu now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think the amazing thing is in a sh- such short time, when you came into the school, it bonds into all of us so quickly because the way you are, the way you, you as a person. And I think it's, uh, it was an, an incredible game for the school in a way for me to, to be able to research a lot of things about you. I'm very amazed with the things that you've done and you're a lot younger than I am and uh, yeah we're going to continue that conversation in the near future definitely to see some of his new adventures and you guys I can't wait for the next time Brandon thank you very much yeah, thank you Brandon thank very you Professor John Jack Professor, Professor J thank opportunity you opportunity to, to share for our, our group of people out there and uh, boy, looking forward to having many more of that kind of conversation with you. And uh, yeah, we'll see you very soon on the mat, right? <laughs> very soon. <laughs> thank you guys for another no gear required. Brandon, once again, thank you very much, man. Thank you.